the person that's going to be buying or experiencing your product, you have to understand who they are. And it's not always about who they are as it relates just to your product, but who they are as a person. So it really is understanding that 360 of who that person is. If you're a brand, you're going to have an interaction and you're going to intersect with one part of a consumer's life. But what are the other parts of that person's life and how does that relate back to your brand? Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now here's your host, Matt Lyles. I found a couple of interesting stats recently, and they relate to empathy. In 2010, the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research published findings from a study where they observed a 40% decline in the ability of students to see the point of view of their classmates over the past 20 years. Now, bring it up a little more recently, just last year, A study from Ignite360 found that nearly one-third of American adults had no strong feelings towards or even disagreed with the statement, it's easy for me to see the point of view in others. So clearly today, we're seeing a measured decline in empathy. And this decline in empathy is really exemplified in today's society. When you recognize how polarized we are, it feels like no one understands others who think differently than them. And not only that, they don't want to understand them. At the same time, empathy is key for your business. Whether it's your customer experience or even your employee experience, empathy is going to help you thrive in the long run because you have to be able to understand your people and deliver experiences that show you understand their needs. So if we establish that empathy is super valuable for business, and especially valuable for a strong society, but empathy has declined considerably over the past 20 years, then we're currently experiencing an empathy crisis. Now, I've been bought into the value of empathy for over five years now. And if you've followed me for a while, you know that empathizing with your customers is one of the key behaviors I've defined that go into delivering simple experiences. So to say I'm a big fan of empathy is an understatement. And that's why I had such a fun time talking with Rob Volpe this week. Rob's the CEO of Ignite360. They're a premier brand insights and strategy firm that's helped a lot of major consumer brands better understand their customers. And Ignite360 provides their signature Empathy Camp, where they help professionals and leaders strengthen their empathy skills for better problem-solving, decision-making, and understanding their consumers and their colleagues. And in addition to leading Ignite360, Rob has been sought out to speak at a number of marketing conferences, 
And he's been featured in publications like Advertising Week, Mashable, and HuffPost. And now, Rob is officially a published author. His first book is out this week. Tell me more about that. Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. Rob and I talk about his lessons from Tell Me More About That, including how empathy has declined over the past couple of decades and why empathy is so important today. But beyond just talking about the necessity and the value of empathy, Rob shares a simple five-step framework that he's developed to help you build your empathy muscle. It's descriptively named Five Steps to Empathy. So here it is. Here's my interview with Rob Volpe. Hi, Rob. How are you? Hey, Matt. Good to good to see you or hear you. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Good deal. Well, I'm happy that you're here too. And I'm excited for you with the launch of your book. Tell me more about that. That's exciting. Yes, I'm beyond thrilled. It's really hard to put into words or find the words, which is kind of ironic for a writer (laughs) or an author, to find the words to describe what it's like seeing your first book in print and something that you worked on for years, but actually come to fruition and and come out. So yeah, it's surreal. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's gratifying. it's, It's just filled with a lot of joy. Well, you should be joyful about it. And and I I really, really enjoyed reading it because having my podcast, I read a lot of books throughout the year. And when I saw the book, I had an expectation of the format of the formula that the book would take. And it was a little bit different than what I was expecting. I was really pleasantly surprised to see so much content that was your storytelling, you talking with lots of your different research, uh, your ethnographic and research subjects. And it was a lot of those stories. And as, as I was reading, I felt like I was right there in that room, you know, like with you, with the videographers, with the clients, listening to this person, you know, tell their background. Thank you. Um, It makes me really happy to hear that because that is what I was intending. I didn't set out to write the traditional business book, partly because of the topic of empathy being something that we can use in our work life as well as in our personal life. And I also felt that it was important to use my own experiences in getting to places of empathy with people that are different from me so that others can start to understand and and transfer that into their own life and reflect back on how that plays out for them. So I'm delighted to hear. Thank you. Uh, It makes me really happy to hear that you read it at that level and, and got that out of it and enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. I've read recently that we're in what's referred to as an empathy deficit or even an empathy crisis currently in 2022. Why do you think that is? Yes, we are. It is, I think, the unintended consequences of, I'll I'll be nice and say good intentions, but many different intentions and things that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years that have created that saying death by a thousand cuts. I think there's an empathy 
deficit and atrophy of our empathy muscle through thousands of different events and, and actions. If you ladder it all up into a, a bigger uh, macro view, though, of what are the bigger societal trends and events that have been happening, you really have to go back into the 90s and start to look at the way kids were growing up and how parents were allowing kids to play and, and the things that they were getting to do. So if you think about the 90s, we had like latchkey kids in the 80s, which is when I mostly right. when I grew up and you'd come home from school and your parents were doing whatever they were doing. Maybe they were home or maybe they were working, but you were home and doing stuff. In the 90s, it started to shift where parents started to utilize other activities as the kind of babysitter, if you would, to keep the kids occupied. But also there was a growing pressure uh, for parents to help their kids, you know, set them up, build the resume so that they could get into Harvard someday or any other other top school. And so suddenly kids started getting overscheduled rather than when they were years before that. Like if you would say you were bored you know, your mom might say, oh, go outside and play or go up to your room and, yeah. and play. And you'd figure out something to do. And oftentimes that activity that you were doing involved role playing, whether you were playing with an action <laughs> figure or a yeah. doll or you were making up some adventure, building a fort. All of that is about role playing. And to role play, you are stepping into the shoes to be somebody else. So you're actually building your empathy skills, you know, and it's not that it went away completely, but kids weren't doing it as much. And so if you think about that exercise analogy, if you're not exercising a muscle regularly and, and training to build it, it's going to either maintain where it is or it's going to get weaker over time if you're ignoring it. So that was one of the things that was happening. We also had huge, huge shifts in technology and the ways that we're relating to technology. And I'll start with just, you know, computers and video games. Suddenly, if you think about, I don't know if you played video games when you were growing up. I did, but not as much as some other friends. Okay. And then nowhere nearly as much as what I see a lot of other children doing today. Um, some of my children's friends. Right. Yeah. So, and I'm very similar, but when I was interacting with technology, it's a one-way relationship. So even if you had a friend over and you're, you know, sitting side by side on the sofa playing you know, a video game today, you can do that and you don't even have to be in the same room. But right. it's the same idea that you're sitting there side by side, you're playing a video game, but your relationship and what you're interacting with is actually the screen rather than with each other. Even though the other player might be, you know, you're, you're kind of interacting in this um, universe of the video game itself. In reality, though, you're not interacting with each other. So there aren't opportunities, again, to build empathy, to understand how they might be thinking or feeling about something. You're having this one-way relationship with a device that is not able to truly understand and connect with you. So again, that's another cut and that's diminishing um, people's abilities to have empathy. And then you look at you know, jump forward into the 2000s and social media gets started. And with social media, you know, which has a lot of great things, has a lot of, of negatives to it as well as we've discovered. But with social media, that's all about getting validation rather than about being supported or really feeling a connection with somebody. It's all about, look at me, here's what I'm doing, here's the news. And it's a very curated and specific story that everybody's presenting. 
And so again, you're not having empathetic connections with each other. You're not really taking the time to hear, see, and truly connect with somebody else. Additionally, there's the trolling, the negative feelings that are so easy to express on social media where people don't have to be held accountable or responsible for things that they'll say. And so you've got a lot of negative anger and attitude rather than positive conversation. Couple on to that, as we've all learned over the last couple of years, the algorithms and the way that the algorithms are, are refining our bubble. And, right. and it's really important to understand, you could call it a bubble, you could call it a tribe, but it's about the people that you're most similar to. And empathy is actually something scientists have found that empathy is something we're born with, but it's something that, and there's two different types of empathy. So there's a lot of different things to unpack. So one, empathy is something we're all born with, but there's two different types of empathy. There's emotional empathy, which is feeling what somebody else is feeling. And then there's right. cognitive empathy and cognitive empathy is about the perspective taking. So if you go back and you think about the tribe and that idea of the tribe, let's go way back in time to to, you know, when we were living in caves and it was a much more um, hunter-gatherer sort of period for humanity. And your tribe were the people that were living in the cave or in the you know, community, as it were. You can extrapolate that to your neighborhood or your town, possibly in today's world. But those were the people that you were connected with, that you had some empathy with because you knew them and you were able to feel what they were feeling. And then out of the forest comes some other tribe and or a representative of some other tribe. And at that point, that's when you need to start to use cognitive empathy. And because you're trying to understand the perspective of somebody that's not like you. So, you know, I'm in San Francisco, you're in Nashville. So we're, you know, it, it would be like me coming into Nashville, a stranger, and you're trying to understand who is this guy from this other place with different customs and traditions and things. And so you use cognitive empathy in order to do that. So now what's happening is the algorithms are realigning the way our tribes are forming and we are forming along ideological lines and not through any sort of sense of geography. So you're able to connect with these people from all over the world and you're not really connecting with who they truly are. You're connecting with that sort of avatar that they've put forward of themselves on that social media platform or wherever you're, you're actually connecting with them. So again, you're starting to isolate in. The bubble is uh, very difficult to penetrate the, the, the walls of the bubble and to get outside of the bubble. And, and then so social media is just kind of feeding on itself and it, it continues to perpetuate the beliefs that we already have. That makes it really difficult then to have empathy with somebody else. We also live in a society now where if you think about uh, the rise of and changes in entertainment, there's a lot of entertainment that is very much competitive based and it's about winning and beating somebody else or being better than rather than supporting and nurturing each other. So you've got all these uh, competition shows or the kind of larger than life uh, reality shows that, again, they're all feeding on conflict. And empathy is not about conflict. Empathy is about understanding. And you're not seeing any sort of empathetic connection happening on those shows. So we're getting a lot of signals in a lot of different fashions 
that, oh, you don't need to worry about other people. You don't need to connect with them. You know, it's all about you. It's becoming this sort of zero sum game. You see it certainly playing out in politics. um, And that's probably the most evident and obvious place. But it's also now reached a point where things are starting to break down and we're not able to, going to politics, we're not able to compromise anymore. And empathy is an important step in the way to compromise. Our leaders are not feeling the need to be empathetic until all of a sudden millions upon millions of people are quitting their jobs because their leaders aren't empathetic to their situation. So we're in this moment of uh, this great awakening of the need to be empathetic and how important empathy actually is to do so many other things that create a healthy functioning society. Wow. I knew that it was probably not just one thing that had been driving this, but then to hear, to hear you talk about it, you're right. Like there's so many things that we're being bombarded with in our culture and in our own professional lives that have kind of pushed a lot of people away from having empathy by not placing emphasis on having empathy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And enabling us to move forward and have a lack of empathy. Well, so it's obvious that we need to overcome this, but what do you think are some of the obstacles to overcoming this lack of empathy? So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the very first and foremost, I think there's a historical perspective and a, a very sort of patriarchal view that empathy, you know, it's an E word, just like emotion and not everybody's comfortable dealing with emotions. And so that's why I do take the time to really help people understand, like, yes, empathy is can be about emotions, especially if it's emotional empathy, but there's also just cognitive empathy, which is about seeing the point of view of somebody else. So it's not quite as scary as having to reach down and feel something really uncomfortable that you personally may not want to feel or or deal with. All you have to do is get to cognitive empathy. And and for so much of our day-to-day life where we are dealing with people that are other, whether it's at the grocery store, the bank, the doctor's office, work. It, that, that's all about cognitive empathy. So one is is getting over that fear of the E word. Another one is a misunderstanding too of, you know, empathy is the, I talk about it like it's, it's a juncture on your way to so many different destinations. So, you know, you're coming down the road, you've come out of this dark forest and you hit this roundabout and empathy is the roundabout. Once you reach a place of empathy, you can go to leadership, collaboration, decision-making, teamwork, innovation, ideation, and then even things that are important, both at work and at home, but personally, you know, forgiveness and compassion. Empathy is critical to all of those things, but you've got to be able to get to a place of empathy in order to get there. And then, you know, the biggest thing that I find stands in people's way um, and is the first of the five steps that I identified as judgment. We you know, right. are carrying all of our biases, all of our experiences with us. And that creates this, I describe judgment sometimes as a brick wall and something that you have to dismantle and, and take down brick by brick. But I also describe it as headphones, like those big Bose headphones that you can buy <laughs> that would just block out every other sound. And lets you only focus or see or hear 
what's right in front of you or what you want to see or hear um, and what you select. And that's the problem with judgment is it's limiting your quote unquote vision. So, so there's a lot of that happening in the workplace, especially for leaders. You know, we, we're coming off of 70 years or more of perceptions of how leaders were supposed to behave. Or, and, and when I say leader, I don't just mean the C-suite. I'm talking about anybody in their role in an organization is a leader in some form or another, whether you're the, you know, fire marshal on your floor or you're a manager or a director, VP or whatever, we're all leading or you're leading a team. You've, you're tasked with something, but we're not trained. Empathy was seen as, as weak. You know, you're supposed to right. lead, command, control, decision-making from the top, that sort of approach. But actually, you know, listening to somebody, listening to your employees, your team, whoever is what you're working with and having empathy with them will create better outcomes and leads to better decision making and all of those other things. But again, it's about what we've been trained and how to behave that has, has not been positive towards empathy. So therefore people are it, you know, it's not in our, our reflexes. It's not instinctual at this point. And that's leading a lot of people to just go, oh my God, what do I do? And how do I do this? And and a lot of companies are shifting to be more empathetic and understand what that means and how that plays out in their organization. And I will say the great irony of all of this, Henry Ford, over a hundred years ago, he's got a quote that I, I sometimes pull out when I'm giving presentations on empathy, he said that the secret to success is being able to see the point of view of somebody else and adopting it as your own and making decisions from that vantage point. And it's like, okay, over a hundred years ago, this man understood what empathy was all about. Clearly a very successful business leader transformed manufacturing, right. did all of these things. There's something to this, but it somehow got lost in, you know, whether it's the, the B-school curriculum or just the, the hallways of corporate America, we've forgotten that. And I think it's a good quote, a good lesson to go back to and to remind ourselves. But if you ask any good salesperson, like, what's the secret of good sales? It's not about beating the prospective buyer into submission. It's about connecting with them and understanding what their needs are and then presenting your product or solution and how the, it can and meet their needs. That's empathy at work. Yeah, and that's if you want to have a long-term successful relationship with that person, whether it's a customer or whether it's an employee. It's not so much winning this immediate transaction. It's creating that long-term relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in most businesses, you ultimately want that repeat purchase or you want the referral and you need to understand who your customer is. Who's the person that's going to buy your product? What is their need? Um, and, and you need empathy, cognitive empathy only. You don't have to feel what they're feeling, but you have to understand it and see their point of view so that you can then develop either a new product or sell to that more effectively. Right. And, and I love how you break down emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. And I think when people see it that way, when people understand what cognitive empathy really is, it means, you know, you, you don't have to 
sacrifice your own views. You don't have to sacrifice your own opinions and your own perspectives in order to actually empathize with somebody else. Right. And that's another, another fear. Thank you for bringing that one up. That's another fear people have. It's like, oh, if I, you know, go back to politics, you know, right. the Democrat is thinking, oh, to see the point of view of a Republican, I have to adopt their whatever moral position or value position is. No, that's not what it means. You know, whether it's gun control, for example, or gun safety, that's not what it means. It just needs, means you need to understand where they're coming from and where their point of view is and just make some room in your head. And the, the integrate to, into understanding section of the book is all about that. It's the fourth step. It's all about just making room in your head that somebody, you know, and I, I break it down to like, it's like ice cream, like yeah. chocolate ice cream is your favorite. There are millions of people that love vanilla ice cream and that's okay but you have to make room in your head that, yeah, there are some people out there that they like vanilla ice cream. And then if you can make room in your head and you're asking the right questions and you're really listening and paying attention, you'll be able to get to why that is and understand their point of view. You're going to have a, a better conversation about it rather than just dig your heels in and get into a fight and be angry with each other over which flavor of ice cream to buy in the grocery store. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, just get Neapolitan. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Something with a fudge ripple through it. There you I go. Think, yeah. <laughs> well, so you have alluded to your steps to empathy and you've actually developed a method of five steps. Can you go into some detail? Can, can you tell me more about your five steps to empathy? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go back um, 12 years now to Sometime in tw summer 2010, I think, there was a study that came out of the University of Michigan that found that college students, they were, they were doing a meta-analysis of campus life studies from 1979 through 2009. They looked at, I think it was 76 different universities who had done you know, those surveys over that time. So lots of data. And they found in 2001 that there was a 40% decline in empathy skills students having the ability to see the perspective of their classmates. And I remember I was in an airport, saw that come up on the crawl on CNN. And I was like, oh my God, that's like, okay, if you were a college student in 2001, where are you in 2010? When I, you know, I was watching right. this, you're in your career. You're like 30 years old. You're, you're starting to become a manager. Maybe you're, you know, out moving through the world and you don't have as strong an empathy skill as people from previous, you know, decades and generations. That's not good. And, uh, you know, it's like one of those moments I was looking around, like, we've got to do something about this. And, you know, everybody else was like worried about getting to their gates or drinking their beer <laughs> at the bar at the airport. Like, I, and it was that very Cassandra moment of like, nobody's understanding what's happening. Yeah. You not see so, the crisis happening around us. Exactly. Exactly. So, I started to think about and research, like, what are the things that are necessary to, you know, what's getting in people's way around empathy? And unfortunately, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of additional research that I've, I've been able to, to look at and also, though, reflect on my own experiences. I'm somebody that's always been pretty empathetic um, and being able to see somebody else's point of view. My parents raised me that way. I had some situations, which I talk about in the book, that kind of triggered that, that desire uh, in me. And so I was also, though, 
going, as you talked about, like I go into people's homes and listen to how they think and feel. And they tell me why they like vanilla ice cream, even though I love chocolate. And I've got to make room in my head for that. So I started to really dissect what what were the things that were getting in my way? What were the steps that I had to take? And then looking also at my clients that were with me and in the conversations with them, like what, what were they doing and what was having to happen? And how was I helping them? And where were they particularly getting stuck? And out of all of that, I identified like, okay, there are actually five steps in that moment of conversation with somebody. There's five things you need to do in order to get to a place of empathy. And that first one is dismantling judgment. Again, it's that brick wall, the noise canceling headphones. It gets in people's way and it comes up. It's the first step, but it also comes back up repeatedly in all of the other steps as well. So it, it to me is the big sort of bugaboo. You've got to watch out for this one. And so it's dismantling judgment. The second step is asking good questions. So just the way you asked me a great question at the beginning how are you? (laughs) It's very open. I could have taken that in so many different places. And you want to ask people those broad exploratory questions if you're hoping to understand them. Right. We too often try to to ask a, a closed question. And a closed question is one where, you know, the answer is yes, no, or maybe. And then where do you go with that? You know, it's not really introducing any new thoughts or, or letting somebody pontificate on how they might be feeling or thinking. And then there's also leading questions and you want to avoid those. So a leading question is, you know, in a a courtroom drama, you always hear that objection leading the witness where they're actually leading somebody to give you an answer that they might want. So, you know, that might be, Matt, tell me what it is about chocolate ice cream that you love so much. And just by me asking you that question that way, if you haven't said already, oh, I love chocolate ice cream, I'm signaling to you that you should love chocolate ice cream. Right. We naturally in conversation want to please somebody. So you want to be agreeable. You don't want to create conflict. So you're going to probably give me, you know, if, if vanilla ice cream is your favorite and I don't know, but you're going to give me false information in order to conform to where I was leading you. And that's the danger of leading. So you want these very open, non-judgmental questions that people can take you wherever you want. So how are you? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Is a really great introductory open question. How do you feel about something? And then it's also having a really good follow-up question, which is where the title of the book comes in. Um, So you might tell me something about what's going on and I'll just say, oh, interesting. Tell me more about that. And that phrase, tell me more about that. Again, it's very open and people can take you wherever they want, but you're inviting them to share on a deeper level. And it's in that sort of second level of answer and information. That's where the richness comes in. And that's where that's the stuff that you can really connect to and, and find points of commonality, connection and ultimately get to empathy. Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience. I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. 
With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with that audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. The last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, if I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. Third step is actively listen. You know, yes, use your ears, hear what they're saying, but you've got to really be present. You know, put the cell phone away, put the other distractions away, pay attention to what's happening, pay attention to body language. Um, what are the nonverbal cues, as they'll say? You know, if you're talking to somebody at work, how are they sitting? If they're, you know, if you're happen to be in the room, even on a Zoom call, you right. can still see a lot from the waist or chest up. Like, are their arms crossed? Is their you know, face kind of scrunched up like that something's bothering them. There's a lot of nonverbal cues that you can pick up from somebody to cue you where to go and and give you more information on what's actually happening. You should also be, if you're live in person and somebody else's environment, you know, pay attention to what's in the room on the walls. You know, I I noticed things that you had uh, when, when we first got onto this call and we had a great conversation about it, but right. had I not been actively listening, paying attention to what I saw in your background, you know, we would have missed all of that. And I think a connection that we were able to, to forge wouldn't have happened or we would have had to have found some other way to get there. So it's about actively listening. It's about using your sixth sense, your intuition. What are you sensing? What, what else is coming up for you? That, that voice inside you that's telling you, hey, you know, maybe ask about this or, ooh, this is, this is the thing we really need to, to unpack. Pay attention to that. You know, our, our, our intuition rarely steers us uh, in the wrong direction, but you have to be aware to tap into it. Fourth step is integrating into understanding. It's making room in your head. Some people like chocolate ice cream. Other people like vanilla. That's okay. Make space for that. People do things differently and that's okay. And then finally, you're using solution imagination. And so that's when you are stepping into the shoes of somebody else, trying to see the world from their perspective. So again, you've taken the judgment down. You've done the steps of asking the questions, paying attention, integrating into it. Now you're trying to actually see what would this be like from their point of view. And hopefully at that point, you have reached a place of empathy. That's it. Wow. So looking at those steps, you know, I'm, I know you, you talk through them in a particular order. And do you see these as sequential steps do you need to master one step before tackling the others? No, I, I laid them out because they needed to be laid out. I laid it out in what seemed to make the most sense in the way that I saw myself and others experiencing it. But it is very 
you know, it's like progress with anything. It's very loop-de-loop. You might master one part of it and then need to go back to an earlier step. Or suddenly, you know, and I've run into this myself where I'm suddenly not asking very good questions. I'm asking very leading questions. And so I've got to go back and, and work on that. So, you know, the, they're laid out so that you understand the journey um, and you do need to kind of clear one before the next. But the way that you practice them they're kind of all getting applied in the moment simultaneously, if you think about it, in the course of that interaction. Yeah, I guess so. So, so it's happening very rapidly, but you got to dismantle judgment. If you can't do that, you're not even going to be able to ask a good question. And if you're not asking the questions, there's nothing to listen to. And if you're not hearing anything, you can't really integrate it into your understanding. And if you haven't done that, then what are you going to use you know, to fuel your imagination? Yes, there is that sort of sequence of it, but everybody will find their own challenges within the five steps. And I don't make any assumptions that people are going to find one step easier than the other. It's diff- I recognize that it's just different for everybody. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, like, you know, some people may be good at asking questions and active listening, but may need to work on dismantling their judgment first. Exactly. Totally. Let's jump into some of these and go a little bit deeper. When you talk about dismantling judgment, what's the best way to battle and to dismantle your judgment? Um, Good question. So first is acknowledgement that you have it and understand that it's coming up. And that can be, and, and look, I'm, even though I've written a book about empathy, And I say, I think in the very first few sentences, like I'm not perfect. um, And I wrestle with judgment all the time. So it's, it's having an awareness that you are being judgmental and that judgment might be getting in your way. Early on, after we had developed the five steps, I started to introduce those to our clients on every project that we go on. And we'd gone on an in-home, it was somewhere in Philadelphia, I think talking to people that shop at uh, convenience stores and that they get food there and, and hot food that they, they would eat. And one, the, the respondent told this story about, I think it was his brother-in-law maybe, who had gone to the, the convenience store. And so, you know, Philadelphia, Wawa sheets are big in that area. They've got really amazing food and a big variety of food. But the guy would, would order a, a pizza um, he'd go to the Wawa, pick up the pizza, but he would also pick up a second pizza. So he had a, one pizza for his family and then the other pizza he would eat in the car on the way home. Oh, yeah, wow. exactly. So, and you're hearing that and you might be going to a place of judgment and, and okay, yes. The client was also doing that while he was hearing that. And he said to me afterward, we'd left, the, the interview was over, we had left. And he said, you know, I was hearing the story about the guy was eating the pizza in the car when he had the other pizza right there and was headed home. And I went to this place of judgment. And so he said, I, I was really having trouble hearing what he was saying. And that's when I realized I was having judgment and I dismantled that and I just, you know, shut it off. And then I was able to connect and hear more fully. So self-awareness is a big part of that. And then I think for everybody, you have to understand where your judgment is coming from and what's causing you to have that judgment. Is it, uh, you know, a, a just a bias that you can easily overcome. For some people, there's an, an injury from a past experience 
that they might need to do some additional work with professional mental health therapist or, or whatever, or just more self-exploration on their own. But in a day-to-day conversation and in communication, it's about having that awareness that, hey, the judgment's there. I've got to get beyond that and get over it. So like dismantling those bricks. There you go. Yeah. And something else that you wrote about in your book was having a beginner's mindset. Yes. I think that helps you to be able to help dismantle your judgment as well. Kind of coming into it and like making yourself see things with uh, fresh eyes or not having any of that either baggage or pre-knowledge about this situation. Exactly. It's forgetting what you might already know or think that you know. And recognizing, yeah, everybody's situation is different. And, you know, it comes up with big, deep exploratory conversations. But also, you know, if I think about a a work interaction, you don't know what's going on in somebody else's life. So you might have some judgment, but let go of that. Let go and just listen to what they have to say and trust that they're going to be telling you the truth and how they're thinking and feeling about something, but listen to that without judgment. So it's taking a beginner's mind. If you are trying to learn something new or learn afresh on a topic, then yeah, coming into it without those preconceived notions is really critical to to learning in a a very genuine, authentic way. and, And hopefully even finding the joy that somebody might have on whatever that topic is. Right. Yeah. And you talk about the example of talking to an employee if they're late turning a report in. On one side, they may have something going on in their personal life that's affecting them. Exactly. On the other side, you may not even understand all the steps and processes they need to take and the hoops they have to jump through in order to produce that report. You may have in your head, I just randomly think that it should take one day to create this report. Whereas with all the systems and processes in place in your team, it actually takes them three to four days to take the report. Yes. I love that example. And if you're not uh, in that, playing that example out a little further, you know, it's, yeah, what are the, all those systems and processes and where might they be getting hung up if they are? You know, so there could be something personally that's going on, you know, because so many people are still working remotely. I think your personal, some of the things that are in your personal life are really in your personal life because you're working in your personal life. But even on a traditional new work in the office environment, you're bringing all of that together. So there's that, is there something going on personally that we need to understand? And then is there something going on in you know, the the work, the way that that report gets pulled together that's creating an issue for the timeliness of it? Or is there something with the individual where maybe they're not understanding something? Maybe they need a little help. Maybe something's changed. Who knows? But you've got to be open to get there so that you can work together towards a positive outcome. There you go. Well, now I want to jump forward and talk about active listening. Okay. Because I think early in my career, I learned about active listening. And to me, it was focused a lot on like just really listening to what someone was saying and didn't really focus that much on actually observing people. 
but I later learned the value of observing people in addition to hearing them. Can you talk to me about that? What's the value of actually observing people in addition to hearing them? Yeah, I mean, it gives you, it's the difference between black and white and color. You know, if you were to watch a movie in black and white, you get some of the emotion. But, you know, think about The Wizard of Oz when suddenly they make that transition into color and you're just like, wow. And it just, it, it, it's revelatory. So when you're able to actually observe somebody and, and listen to those cues that they're giving you, you're getting the rest of the picture, a lot more of the picture. I wouldn't say it's all of it, but you're getting a lot more of it than just what you're hearing. Because people can tell you things, but their body is going to either confirm or contrast or disavow kind of what they're saying. Right. But you've got to be looking for it. You know, it's that classic example I've always seen most often is the, are your arms crossed or are they open? Sitting with your arms crossed is usually a more defensive posture. It, it signals that there may be some doubt or skepticism or disinterest in what, what's being discussed or, or heard. Sometimes it's also about a person's physiology and the way their body's put together. It's more comfortable for them to sit with their arms crossed. Well, then you've got to be looking at their face. Like, how is their facial expressions lining up to the body language? Are they leaning in or are they leaning back? If you're leaning in, you're more interested. If you're leaning back, that can also be a signal of uh, disinterest or not taking it something seriously and levels of engagement. So there's a lot of different subtle cues that we're constantly communicating um, to each other that are just kind of hardwired into who we are as a species and we've grown up doing, but you need to be paying attention to it. Yeah. And I like how you say it's paying attention to lots of details, not just one or just a couple of particular details, because someone may be either leaning forward or leaning backward and have their arms open or have their arms crossed. But then what else is going on around them? What's happening in their environment? Is the chair that they're sitting in so uncomfortable that it's forcing them to lean a particular way? Right. Exactly. Maybe they need to go to the bathroom. Who knows? Yeah. You know, and are they making eye contact with you? You can go through all the different parts of the body and everything is communicating something. The positioning of their brow, the intensity of a gaze, you know, are they making eye contact? Are their eyes darting around? You know, are they looking up to the right? Is it thinking and contemplating something or in another direction. There's a lot of different cues to be paying attention to, as well as then, yeah, the full environment that they're in, which as I, some of my favorite stories in the book are about what happens when you go into somebody else's home and the things that you can discover. And I know that doesn't happen for everybody, but you have to be paying attention at all moments, even when you think you're sort of off or off the clock, if you would. By paying attention, you're able to learn so much more and, and read so much more into the situation. And that increases your understanding and therefore your empathy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and not, not everyone has the opportunity to just simply go into other people's homes and just see how they live. But if you're really focused on observing people around you, whether it's your customers, your team members, or even just the people that you interact with throughout your day, just taking that time to observe how they carry themselves, 
how they're dressed, what they focus on, how they may, you know, talk or react to other people, just observing all those details. Yeah. And, and especially when it's people that you see on a regular basis, you're also then thinking about what are the changes over time, you know, and, and is something different in this interaction than what I've seen before? And what does that mean? There you go. Well, how can brands incorporate these five steps into designing experiences they deliver to customers? I love that question. Thank you for asking. Um, This is so critical to any brand or business because you have to understand, truly understand who your customer, call it a customer, call it a client, call it a consumer the person that's going to be buying or experiencing your product, you have to understand who they are. And it's not always about who they are as it relates just to your product, but who they are as a person. So, you know, it really is understanding that 360 of who that person is. So, you know, if you're a brand, you're going to have an interaction and you're going to intersect with one part of a consumer's life. But What are the other parts of that person's life and how does that relate back to your brand? How does that influence why they might even seek out your brand? What's the need that it's causing that will prompt them to want that experience from you and from your brand? So having empathy with your consumer, customer, client, so, so critical because you most likely are not them. You are certainly, you know, different individuals, but there are often times where you are of a different demographic, race, ethnicity, income level, education level, and that's just the demographics. Then there's the psychographics as well. And so a common mistake that we see people make is they project their own beliefs and opinions onto their consumers that they don't even have. And that's where brands can get totally off course. So it's so it's important to take the time to get to know who your consumer is and to have empathy with them and, you know, bring them into the room, sometimes literally, and but also figuratively. How do you have them in the room and part of the conversation in your organization? Yeah. And I think once you do that, you're going to be able to do some of these steps like integrating into your own understanding, use solution imagination to better understand how your service, how your product, how your experience can actually help meet your customer's needs, not meet the needs that you think somebody has based on your own needs. Exactly. And, but it's taking the time to dismantle your judgment, asking the questions, actively listening And then integrating it into your understanding, figuring out what those insights are so that you can actually use your solution imagination. And, you know, again, it's that roundabout, like, hmm, in this case, I want to get to better innovation. So I'm going to come up with new products and services, or it might be about communication. And I'm going to communicate with an empathetic undertone to improve sales or improve perceptions of my brand. So empathy is so critical to everything. If you don't understand, if you don't have empathy with your consumer, how are you going to succeed? You know, you're going to be clubbing everybody over the head, trying to get them to buy your product. And I think Henry Ford, you know, I go back to that Henry Ford quote, like he understood what he was doing. And, you know, and you've gotten the secret of success is to understand somebody else's point of view and to adapt it as your own. I love that quote. I'm so surprised to hear that that came from Henry Ford. 
for being noted for uh, saying that, yeah, sure, sure, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. Exactly, exactly. But he also understood business and how to interact with other people. And yeah, he needed to simplify his manufacturing process. But the first time I came across that quote, I was like, seriously, this is Henry Ford. And I had to look at, you know, dig into it yeah. to, to make sure that it was actually him. and Verify it on Snopes. <laughs> exactly. And everything I've been able to find said, he said that. There you go. He also understood that people were at that point in time, were just looking for an automobile. It's, it's kind of like, you know, look at the iPod or even the iPhone when those first came out. I think they only came in one color. Right. And then over time, it's like, oh yeah, people would like color options. Okay. We'll give them color options. But first let's just get this out here and like, wow, there's so much demand. And then you start to, to build from there. Excellent. Well, I love this. I'm, I love how you've outlined these five steps because, you know, a lot of people keep talking around the need for empathy, being more empathetic with each other or with our people, with our customers. But few people go into detail around, say, in order for you to have empathy, this is how you do it. And these five steps laid out. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, Matt. I really I appreciate that. I'm glad you you recognize that. Um, and I hope your, your, your listeners, everybody that's listening, uh, is able to grab onto that as well. Yeah. Well, Rob, last question for you. If you were to create a five-song soundtrack for Tell Me More About That, what songs would you include? Yes, I love that exercise. Great question. I love music. And I tried to keep it focused on the book rather than like what I, you know, my first reaction was, <laughs> oh yeah, when I needed to get into the zone to write, I went to this, you know, Pandora station I have set up, but. Oh, nice. <laughs> but this is about the book. Um, so the first song is People Are People by Depeche Mode. Oh, yes. About not getting along with other people. Why are you treating me so, so badly? The second song, which is like my all-time favorite song, just generally, is Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush which is about having perspective and trying to see the point of view of somebody else, you know, to swap places with someone else. So to me, that that song reflected the struggle and the yearning to do that. And then the third song is Treat People with Kindness by Harry Styles, uh-huh. which is ultimately one of the outcomes of empathy. And it's about that transformation of what can happen when we do have empathy, is that we're able to treat people with kindness and be treated ourselves with kindness as well. It's not all about, empathy is a two-way street. It's not just about how I'm treating you. It's about how I can be treated in return. And then I would be remiss not to include a song actually called Empathy by Alanis Morissette, came out about 10 years ago, and that is about having empathy. And then I round it out with a good empowerment anthem because I think every playlist needs one. Of course. And I chose uh, Sissy That Walk by RuPaul. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Love it. Oh, wow. um, Very good, eclectic list. And I love that it all fits around that theme. Love it. Well, Rob, I have learned a lot from your book and I've learned a lot from our discussion here. But where can people go to learn more from you? Yes. Um, well, Matt, first, thank you. The, I've loved the conversation and you've asked great questions yourself. Uh, so I appreciate that. I learned it from you. 
Oh, I, I hopefully I just helped you along the way. I think I have a sense you might have been asking good questions before this, but I'm glad to have increased your awareness of it and helped boost your skills. Yes, thank you. So yeah, to find out more, you can go to five steps to empathy.com, the number five steps to empathy.com. That has a lot of information about the book and where you can order it. It's available wherever books are sold online as well as in person, but you can order it off of that site. You can also connect with me for speaking or learn more about my company, Ignite360. I'd also invite people to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Rob Volpe, just look for Empathy Activist, which is also my handle on Instagram and on TikTok. And on Twitter, I'm RM Volpe. Excellent. So many ways to find you and to keep learning from you. And congrats again on the book coming out. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to join you today. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Rob Volpe. So go and check out his book, Tell Me More About That. Now, again, this book's really different from most other business books in that it focuses so much more on real storytelling with real people and less about theory. And with Rob's writing style, it feels like you're right there with him as he's learning these lessons around building empathy. So if you want a simple framework to learn how to better understand your customers, how to better understand your employees, how to better understand the people in your life, then this book is for you. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, let's hit that subscribe button because it's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Brian Kramer. Brian is the co-founder of H2H Companies. H2H, oh, that means human to human. Because when it comes down to it, there really is no B2B. There's no B2C. The experiences that you should be delivering is really H2H, human to human. In addition to H2H Companies, Brian's also a business performance coach, a keynote speaker, a TEDx speaker, and a contributor to Forbes. And he's the author of two best-selling books, Human to Human and Shareology. Brian and I talk about his lessons on humanizing our business experiences through simpler communication, empathy, and even celebrating our imperfections. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Brian's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.